This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sanjukta Podar, the host of the channel and an assistant professor at the Institute of Asian Studies at Leiden University. Today, we are in conversation with Dr. Sunandan K.N. about his new book, Caste, Knowledge and Power, Ways of Knowing in 20th Century Malabar published by the Cambridge University Press in 2022. Uh, Sunandan K.N. is Assistant Professor at Azim Premji University, Bangalore. Sunandan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sanjukta. Uh, and thank you, New Book uh, Review. I am a keen listener of this podcast, and this is a wonderful platform which have introduced me to many books. So thank you very much. Great, great to have you here. Um, so and then I would like to begin begin the discussion by asking you about yourself. How did you become interested in research and decide to pursue a career in academia? So this is a very open-ended question. You can take it as you like. Yeah, so I started my career as an engineer. You know, like uh, people start do engineering, then think what to do. So same thing happened to me also. Uh, so... When I was working as an engineer, I I was interested. I am from Kerala, so literature and politics was very much there in the public sphere in Kerala. And so I was also interested in that. So I was planning to move into academics in some way, but at that time, to do an MA, you need a, either a BA degree or a BSc degree, but mine was BTEC. So but, uh, I was not able to initially, but in 2020, Sorry, t- uh, 2000, Mahatma Gandhi University uh, started a MA sociology program. Uh, so at that point, they also invited engineers to join sociology program. So that's how I started in uh, social science, actually. So I did MA from there. At that period, I was more interested in, uh, say, uh, science and technology studies, uh, and also a little bit philosophy of science I was reading. And these two authors, basically, Paul Farabend uh, in Philosophy of Science and Bruno Latour in Sociology uh, Studies of Science, they were reading their books, you know, kind of, uh, I decided after reading those books, I decided that, okay, I want to pursue this uh, research in these areas. And so I applied in, uh, for MPhil in Jawaharlal University. Uh, I did MPhil from Center for Studies in Science Policy. So it was a science policy department, but my supervisor was a historian, a historian of science and technology. Uh, so it is at that period I got interested in history also. 
So slowly I started reading uh, historical debate around technology. And so I was, uh, this is 2003. At that period in Jawaharlal University, caste was not a, you know, like major debate among students. And no students organization based on uh, anti-caste politics was there. Uh, so we discussed everything but not caste. Uh, so I was mostly thinking of doing a PhD on history of technology uh, or history of science kind of uh, research I was planning to do. But then it was this uh, 2002, I think, Gobal Guru's article is coming out, you know, uh, how egalitarian are the social sciences in India, in which uh, he uh, clearly point out this you know, theoretical Brahmins and empirical Shudras kind of divide in Indian academics. So that caught my attention. And he also mentioned in that uh, among the subaltern caste, artisans are the one caste which have a capacity and leisure uh, time or other ways, other social time to reflect on their work. Other kind of, say, manual scavenging workers, or they don't have a scope to think about knowledge or theorization. So artisan was considered a specific, artisans have a very specific engagement with knowledge. That was Goban Guru's point. So I thought that that is where my interest are merging. Question of caste now becomes central to that. So then I joined for, applied for PhD in the U.S. and I worked, uh, I worked with a American, sorry, African historian actually. Uh, and I did PhD from Emory University in Atlanta. So uh, but I, my writing happened after, you know, the translation from PhD to the book is also took some time because it was written basically for a uh, American white professor, my supervisor and committee. Uh, so then it, to convert that to an Indian audience was a little uh, time-taking task. So yeah, I finished my PhD and it took around, around five years to publish the book again. Okay, that's fascinating. Thanks for sharing these biographical details uh, with me and the listeners. Um, and this takes me to the next question, which is um, going to ask you to elaborate a little more on this particular research project the, and the book that emanated out of it. So how did you, uh, for instance, choose this particular cast or this archive um, to uh, to focus on when you were thinking of doing your PhD or when you started your PhD? Yeah, so there are different, uh, you know, moments that enabled me to think about these questions. One is on the, you know, academic side, I was reading more about caste and question of technology, uh, how they are related, because the, always there is this question of uh, occupation as a, uh, you know, marker of caste. Uh, so in that way, technology, earlier technologies, history of technology in India is uh, clearly related to caste practices. That was very obvious. But also in Indian academics at that time, after my PhD, uh, Indian academics, a lot of anti-caste politics was happening in the universities. So that also inspired me to think more deeply, what is the contemporary state of knowledge production and how it is related to caste? And so how can I try to uh, trace a genealogy of this relation uh, instead of already assuming that caste is directly determining knowledge production. I want to further inquire into what are the ways in which this entwinement has happened. 
So that is the major way I, uh, the provocation, that was the provocation to think about this project. So I approached this from two point of, you know, the existing debates. One is regarding knowledge production itself, uh, uh, which is, you know, like in the post-colonial uh, or post-structuralist understanding, there is enough problematization of science as a Western project, science as a language of state, etc. So that is one point debate where I want to move forward. Uh, but uh, also these critics sometimes takes the alternative as, you know, kind of national kind or Brahminical or indigenous as the location where the alternative knowledge is located. Uh, so uh, you look Indian philosophy, for example, if you do challenge uh, Western philosophy, you critically analyze Indian philosophy, etc. Whereas artisanal knowledge was not really a kind of considered as an alternative part of knowledge. Uh, they were looked from another perspective that is of indigenous knowledge. And so then I researched on, say, on Benares viewers uh, or, you know, like specific artisans. Uh, but most of them came as a, uh, either a historical narrative of describing the process of that community or as a political economy uh, perspective. Uh, how the transition happened into the industrialization and what is the impact of that on artisan and production. So I was more interested in to look what are the ways of knowing itself uh, and how that transformed during the, this period. That was my one way of entering into that. So that immediately led me to the debates on caste. So uh, one of the famous ways in the post-colonial world, you know, like, uh, after 1990s, Nicholas Dirk's work was very important, you know, like in the colonial period, caste was recast. The way we know caste today is self formation uh, in the colonial period. Uh, this argument has provoked, uh, you know, many debates. Uh, so I was also interested in that. But when we look, say, from 1950s or even before Curie or Emin Srinivas uh, onwards, we'll see that the attempt is to arrive at a general theory of cost that can be applied throughout the spaces and then throughout the time, you know. Uh, so uh, you will see that these attempts, you know, either as purity and pollution or hierarchy and difference, etc., there are kind of theorization. Even when they look into the, in their ethnographic work, they will argue that, okay, cost is local and it's practiced differently. They want to arrive at a general theory of uh, cost. So that is what I was thinking, you know, like even in Kerala, different areas, these caste practices are different and are they relation to the modern forms of knowledge also local? That was I was trying to look into. Also, there is this idea that Brahmins were controlling knowledge uh, for 2,000 years, when the caste system begin onward, then onwards, Brahmins were controlling the knowledge. Is one of the argument from both uh, Brahminical perspective and anti-caste perspective. So I was also looking whether these claims exist in 19th century, for example. Brahmins claim that we have knowledge, you know, we have traditional knowledge, so that is why our superiority over other castes were they claiming. These are the points, the base through which I entered into the book. Okay, that's that's excellent. And so I actually now I'll ask you some specific questions about the, um, you know, your archival journey actually, because I, I like to ask all the authors about this. 
for many of the listeners, especially young scholars who are still in their PhD phase, it's very fascinating to know what happened in the background that led to uh, the production of this uh, project and the book, right? So, um, and as you were saying that in the case of your book, you uh, delve into many kinds of um, of of not of of ways of knowing and knowledge production, including non-textual sources of knowing, doing. And so, this is a bit of a spoiler for the audience, but uh, I think this is an important, uh, the key aspect of your book, right? So please uh, tell us about the kind of archival sources that you use and also perhaps the uh, particular sites of your research uh, in Kerala or maybe elsewhere. Uh, That would be fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, this also actually was connected to my question itself, the research question itself, some way uh, influence my uh, sources, uh, the way I looked at the sources. One of the important thing, you know, like in this, including the subaltern studies project, which tried to bring the subaltern voices uh, into history. The problem is that history is considered to be the, uh, you know, a disciplinary history is supposed to be the uh, authentic narrative of the past, you know, though it includes memories. Uh, oral narratives, subaltern studies scholars were very keen to include oral narratives and others, uh, other kind of sources, and not traditional, you know, not con- what's it, not just colonial archives, but other sources they were using. But they want all to translate that into a prose kind of narrative, which will be historical narrative. Uh, so my question was, if doing is central to this uh, community, which with uh, whom I was working with, then it should, I cannot depend on written or just oral sources. I have to see their practices. I have to see the tools. Uh, I have to understand it in a way, like uh, impressionistically, the word I use in my uh, introduction. Because first, there are, you know, like uh, there is another point also in this, because most of the time, these community reform or practice change in the community is understood as a response to the colonial intervention. Uh, While I want to put emphasis on colonialism on the one hand, but also the community's engagement, not as a reaction or response, but as an independent response, which changed colonialism itself. Uh, So they also transform and the state also, or colonial practices and discourses also transformed. So uh, in that way, I don't want to centralize you know, I didn't begin with uh, how colonialism emerged and their modern institutions emerged and how communities responded to that. So for that also, so uh, colonial archives, depending on colonial archives will not be helpful. So I looked a lot of uh, Malayalam publications at that period to understand the, uh, basically Naputiris, which is a caste uh, group, Brahmin group in Kerala, about uh, there are two chapters in this. They were writing started journals and those uh, kind of uh, journals and newspapers and this in Malayalam I worked with, which is in different part of libraries you, which was available. Also personal collections. I was, you know, some of the uh, very, you know, like materials were with persons and so I was able to read it. But I think that is one part, as I mentioned, I think also observation, you know, like being 
of uh even before this research even from my childhood onwards i'm familiar with carpenters working uh, in my region my house also you know like i was a lot of friends among carpenters uh, so uh i was also interested in you know kind of ethnographic stud- studies so it's the, um, you know the debate on historical anthropology is you know like uh emerged in See, even Bernard Bohan's works onwards, uh, we have seen un- uh, historical anthropological work. So here, uh, uh, I want to stress, take that narrative, their stories, uh, their doing also as a reliable source. As knowledge itself, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so actually, this is a, a perfect segue to delve into the book itself, uh, which is divided into five chapters. And which is organized yeah. to my understanding uh, around the distinction between categories of knowing uh, and the order of knowledge and knowledge production in colonial yeah. era Kerala. Um, and of course, it's also organized around two contrasting case studies, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but between the Asharis and the Nambutris. Did I pronounce that correct? Asharis? Yes, yes. yes. Nambutris. So, some of the key terms that caught my attention were Ashari Panni and Acharam. Uh, yeah. But you've also uh, published some articles about this, of course. Yeah. So could you share with uh, the listeners how these two jatis and these two uh, terms frame your book? And, you know, you can maybe just give a general overview because then uh, mm-hmm. we can go through chapter by chapter after this. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So the contemporary forms of knowledge production, the dominant forms of knowledge production, uh, the divide between theory and practice is very uh, central to formation of institutions, uh, understanding of knowledge, uh, and also different kinds of theorization of knowledge. This divide between theory and practice is very much important. So I was thinking about uh, in the early colonial period, uh, not early colonial period, in the 19th, uh, late 19th and early 20th century, which are the caste groups supposed to be have this theoretical knowledge and this practical knowledge. So the colonial orientalistic articulation is that Brahmins have the, say, uh, theoretical knowledge about architecture, uh, and the carpenters and other masons have the practical knowledge. That is the way in the scholarship has been, the orientalists have been depicting the practices in India. And this was taken by nationalists also. You know, so theory become the one of the realm for Nambudiris, and uh, practice become the or uh, of domain of Asharis. So I want to think about when did this articulation emerge and what are the conditions in which this emerged and how the communities were considering this articulation. So in that case, Ashari is a carpenter community in Malabar. Uh, so I'm familiar, I'm from that region and so I'm familiar with that region. Uh, and especially I thought that if I have to, you know, observe and be part, uh, uh, see the work, etc., it should be more familiar spaces where I, you know, I can uh, observe the work also. So this is in majorly uh, done in Malabar, but also many po- uh, arguments can be extended to all Malayalam speaking region in that way. Uh, but I limit uh, to Malabar in that way. Uh, so... Ashari Pani is carpentry, the work. Uh, that is crucial in their understanding of their life, not just the work itself, but the way they organize the community, the way they understand 
gender, for example, uh, the way they understand the uh, divine when the uh, their relation with non-human uh, objects, etc., is determined by the concept of asharipani. So I, I, we can say that asharipani is the central organizing category of their community. So I use the word world uh, in two, three chapters. The world is a concept uh, I'm using because uh, there is a question of creating a world of their own uh, in which you know it's influenced by others also, but they consider ashari world as our particular kind of laws and regulations which is applicable only in that which is defining their understanding of knowing. Outside that, even they enter into an outside world, say uh, in an upper caste world, the laws and the laws of the world changes. The So that's the, I am using the concept of world also. On the other hand, the Brahmins, I think Ajaram was central uh, to their understanding of Brahminical world, Nambudiri world. Ajaram was the central organizing category for their world. Uh, this has been rituals have been Ajaram in simplistic terms you can translate as a ritual but rituals have been studied in relation to you know like uh, specific rituals you know uh, I'm using the word Ajaram as a daily practice even everything in Nambudri life world is determined uh, eating uh, sleeping uh, everything is determined by Ajaram so it's not just a ritual that you do when a uh, puja happens or something particularly happened. Uh, ritual, uh, this acharam is the way in which everything is referred back. Uh, it's a, a reference, but also it is uh, a practice that is determining their daily life. So those are, these cat two categories are central to theorization of these two communities. Thank you. And I think uh, this introduction um, and overview of the argument will uh, definitely make the audience curious to learn more about the main uh, claims of the book, yeah. which we'll now turn to. So chapters one and two focus on the Ashari caste, about uh, which you discussed right now and you explained, um, and their ways of knowing and ignoring, right? Those are the yeah. key terms through which you organize these two chapters. Um, so uh, please uh, tell us about the, uh, you know, if any details that you want to share uh, as well as, I, I was personally curious about the category of ignoring, uh, how that uh, becomes an active uh, agent almost in, in, in this in this chapter. Um, yeah. So I'll start with the first chapter uh, where I try to understand the specific ways of knowing uh, in the carpentry practices in the early 20th century. And I want to say that this cannot be generalized, say, later part of 20th century, for example, their concept of knowing their practice also changed. So there is a footnote I'm saying that this is applicable only for a specific period in early 20th century Malabar. Uh, so that is also that kind of limiting of generalization itself is part of Ashari practice itself. Uh, so they will say that you can generalize the ways of doing uh, only the only in the spaces where you can reach by walking. So uh, you cannot generalize that to whole. Say there is a specific way of doing creating a, a particular house or a furniture. You cannot generalize that practice to all carpenters. Everyone does like that. No, it's very located. 
So in that way, I also want to locate my generalization also in that region and that specific period. So one of the important uh, ways uh, they uh, told me, you know, like whatever their way of uh, understanding their practice is that knowing is a side effect of we. That is the first point, you know, like the objective is not to know the world. You will be experiencing the world through doing and which produce certain kind of knowing. And it's not a, that's why I try to, uh, as you mentioned earlier, two categories I use, production of knowledge and practices of knowing. You know, here there is a idea that knowledge can be produced as an object and handed over to other people. It can be book, written, or what, whichever form. You can produce as an object and then uh, uh, transact that to other people. The other uh, Ashari understanding is that you can have knowing only when you are doing. And what they teach uh, in carpentry, if you are training a younger person, what they teach is that how to be in that doing, how the disposition of your body and your senses, how do you train that uh, to be in a particular situation. That is what they are tra training. Not to make a, uh, say, a furniture. They don't train that. Uh, what they train is to how to handle the tool, how to be in touch with the wood, what are the experiences of, how do you categorize different trees which are useful to particular purposes. These are kind of way of, so earlier this theorization of indigenous knowledge mostly used this category experience. Uh, but I want to use that as not as experience as a product that is already, you know, like produced within, uh, but as a process, which is so that I use the word category experience, uh, which is, you know, it's just a, a process in which there is no finite product, but it uh, happens do, through the doing. Uh, so the first chapter. Yeah, there's a process that is. That is, I mean, yeah, the process of doing is the process of knowing rather than creating a finished yeah. object that's a repository that's passed on. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So also, I don't want to, you know, like this theorization of indigenous knowledge sometimes happens as completely opposite to scientific knowledge, for example. So I don't want, I don't see that way uh, the carpenter, uh, Ashari Pani as completely opposite to the engineer's work on, but same as the both are not, uh, will not be a great description of their work. The similarity is then there is objectification in Ashadipani and engineering. Generally, the objectification is uh, considered to be part of scientific knowledge production or technological practices, which is very much there in Ashari practices also. But that is limited to Ashari world. They don't want to objectify a tree standing in a forest. That is not a, uh, the Heidegger, uh, Heidegger has a concept of stand in reserve uh you know nature is in the modern world nature is considered to be a stand in reserve for human beings uh so they consider say the tools the wood in their world as stand in reserve but not outside their world so it's, it's not in a complete opposition to that but it is a limited way of applying it similarly abstraction and generalization is also part of their work uh, usually, that's a colonial understanding is that these people can have skill, but not, you know, knowledge. Skill is kind of bodily practice, uh, but no knowledge. That is the understanding. Knowledge is theory, theorization of that. Uh, 
but you will see that there is abstraction. It's happened not only uh, in ideas, but also in this is the very specific thing about carpentry. They abstract through doing, through making. Say, for example, when they're making a chair, for example, that chair is a unique object as in that way it's particular, but also it is representing that particular community of Asharis, you know, like specific way of making. So that's also an abstraction uh, through material object. So these are the differences I try to introduce in the first chapter. Not differences, I'm comparing this to the science and technology in some way, the forms of knowledge practices in science and technology. That's, uh, so experiencing is important, also uh, abstraction and generalization. The difference is that in our say, theorization, the ultimate form of knowledge is in theory, theory itself. Here, there is no, uh, they will go back to particular always. They don't stand at the final, you know, like, okay, this is knowledge, we reached that. That is not the way they understand it. They go back, back and forth from particular to general and general to particular. So that is another major difference uh, in the carpentry practices. Also, uh, as colonial govern uh, governments started recruiting artisans into their institutions and, you know, also intervening in the earlier practices, uh, there are different communities responded in different ways. Say, for example, uh, subaltern communities, uh, Dalit communities, uh, when there was opportunity for education, they immediately took up it as a way of, uh, you know, escaping from the caste oppression. And that was one of the major channels through which they thought that they can uh, escape the caste oppression. But Asharis did not start a reform movement, for example. Uh, there are different reasons for this. There are economic reasons this, behind this, but also uh, mainly uh, there is a social reason, uh, social reason of social status behind this. Say other works, many works were depicted as impure by Brahmins in some sense. Whereas Asharipani was not considered as a uh, impure work because they are building temples, they are building houses. Uh, and so it's not the work itself are not is not considered impure. So that enabled them to stick into that work without losing the status of the work. You know, like when uh, missionaries also took over this narrative, they did not consider artisanal work as impure. Actually, they were missionaries, for example, they were starting workshops and training centers uh, for converted people. So that helped them to stick on to their work. But also, they thought that it is the central organizing principle of their caste. So if they move out of this work, they will lose their caste. That was the understanding. Whereas, say, example, Srinaranaguru, uh, the Pijavar reform movement through an SNDP uh, organization, so the, those period, Srinaranaguru's main uh, appeal to the Pijavars was to move away from the traditional uh, occupation. And uh, because that is considered impure. Also, Ayangali want people to move away from agricultural work and study in schools and colleges. This did not happen in uh, Ashari's case. So what they do, did is not participating, but that is not colonial archives will show you that uh, many references saying that they are ignorant. That's why they are not participating in these modern forms of institutions. But they were clearly, uh, if you look there, 
uh, memories and you know like their own writing sometimes or their uh, practices you will see that this was a deliberate attempt to move away from colonial practices in some sense keep a distance uh, James Scott's argument of keeping a distance from the state kind of argument is some way applicable to this but that doesn't uh, that did not mean that they did not participate any of this but they kept this as a separate world they attempted so that is why ignoring is i consider as a way of resisting colonial intervention mm -hmm. yes that's fascinating and so yes i think it's a very uh, novel way of thinking about how a community negotiates their interaction with colonialism and colonial modernity right by um, by making a conscious choice not as you said out of ignorance but a deliberate form of ignoring in order to um, hold on to their own repository of knowledge and uh, practices which make them in their view in their worldview unique uh, right so it's a conscious choice and it's not a it's not out of ignorance. So ignoring as a conscious choice and not born out of ignorance. So I think that's fascinating. Um, so moving on to chapters uh, three and four, uh, and here you highlight, of course, the order of knowledge and the knowledge production of the Nambutris and the Brahmin community, one of the foremost Brahmin communities of Kerala. And in these chapters, you show how caste privilege structures the very order of knowledge um, in the colonial period and which was then as you know as those who read the book will see uh, uh, structure the idea of knowledge as inherited in the post-colonial period so i would love to hear a little more about this and any details you want to share about the argument here yeah so this is some way many people may object to this argument uh, that so i start the chapter saying that uh, nambudris were not part of knowledge production in 19th century kerala so I, it's, I just want to put it in a higher, like a provoking statement. That's why I, uh, here we understand knowledge as, as we understand it in the modern terms, you know, say medicine or agriculture, astronomy, uh, or the, that kind of knowledge. But what's happening in 19th century through Orientalist scholarship is that the, tradition, the idea of a traditional knowledge emerges. Uh, it is through this uh, interaction of colonial researchers, colonial officers with the Brahmins who were supposed to be the people who have knowledge that is this new idea is emerging. So it's influenced not only the idea of traditional knowledge but how should be the modern institutions of knowledge practice itself. So my starting point is that the 19th century emergence of modern institutions of knowledge production itself already mapped into caste practices in India. So, uh, universities were supposed to be the higher universities and research institutions were the higher, you know, level of uh, knowledge production, whereas then there are engineering colleges and then you can have polytechnics which are lesser where you have a little more, uh, you know, like physical work and then industrial training institutes where it's only a physical work. Uh, so this hierarchy is itself mapped into caste practices in India. Uh, so that is why I want to call this modern form of knowledge as colonial, not just as colonial, but colonial Brahminical. Uh, so it is in this domain there Nambudris are trying to enter into the uh, knowledge production. There is an already assumption that modern forms are already negotiated 
to have class practices and so they can enter. That is one idea. But it was practically not very, you know, that easy. Uh, because as I mentioned earlier, Acharyam was the central organizing principle of their caste. So how do you protect Acharyam and then enter into the order of knowledge? That was the, so initially there was a lot of resistance. Actually, the reform organization they started, which is called Yoga Kshema Sabha, uh, which was to not to reform, actually to uh, how we can continue our Acharyam, that was to protect Acharyam, that was their idea, how to, what should we do, we should organize to protect our Acharyam, that was the idea when it was started. But then they also see that uh, many other places and other communities entering into order of knowledge are making them more, you know, keep their status or increase their status. This was happening about Nair community, which was, uh, you know, also uh, become one of the Savarna communities later. So they are seeing this. And so the this contradiction is the first, chap first chapter on uh, order of knowledge and uh, order of Ajaram. I'm trying to uh, say this contradiction emerging. On the one hand, the idea of protecting Ajaram and on the other hand, the temptation of entering into order of knowledge. And so I, in the sec uh, second, uh, that's the fourth chapter, I'm trying to say that it is not that the modern forms of knowledge cannot incorporate the practices of Acharya. We may put, you know, like Acharya as on the one hand, we can put it as a, uh, a religious beliefs, uh, you know, kind of uh, antithetical to scientific beliefs, scientific practices, etc. But it go well in hand in hand in this, uh, say, 1930s onwards, you will see that, say, for example, they can keep the untouchability in a different way. So uh, within the schools or within the modern colleges, universities, etc., they can practice their own food practices, uh, etc. And so but they redefine Ajaram in this process. So uh, some of them are called superstition now. Some Ajaram which is not suitable for to entry into the order of knowledge, maybe they will call superstition, but also some Ajaram they will call as now as knowledge. Say for example, they will describe certain uh, practices and then they will say, okay, this is scientific. Uh, so now we hear that a lot in the current condition of India, you know, like current political situation, you see everything is scientific, you know, like that kind of argument is emerging at this period. Because 19th century, you don't need to justify Ajaram as something as knowledge. Uh, knowledge did not have that uh, political power at that time. But by early... If I might interrupt a little bit here, I'm also curious, was Acharam also recorded as culture or as um, ritual or heritage, which is the kind of argument that MSS Pandyan uh, alerts yeah. us to, right? That um, that uh, certain upper caste Brahminical practices uh, being recorded as our heritage, our culture, or um, and, and, and being talking about caste without naming caste, right? So yeah. you see that also happening? Definitely, definitely. Because uh, here I uh, I see that, you know, like it's... But there is a tendency which I say, okay, so certain practices, you should not continue. You know, like, say, the major way, if you look Sati, for example, Sati was considered not, you know, a good practice. Uh, you It's... You can avoid that, still become a, you know, continue your Ajara. Uh, similarly, from big to small 
daily practices, there was a review of this scrutiny of what is superstition, what is scientific, etc. So they conveniently avoided many which cannot be justified in some sense at that period. So they conveniently avoided that. Say, for example, you cannot know enter in school. Uh, there were Nambudri Vidyalayam schools, but were uh, there were only Nambudris. But other public schools, there were other caste people. So you cannot avoid, you know, being near to them. Uh, so there was distant pollution. They were practicing earlier distant pollution. But some caste group, if they even come certain distance close, they will be polluted. But they now they cannot continue that practice. So they did not. They avoided that. They entered into schools and public schools and colleges. But what they do is coming back before entering the house, they will take a bath, you know. So so it's reformed in that way. But, you know, uh, and this is explained in a uh, way of hygiene, you know, like again, scientific principles. Uh, they were trying to explain Ajaram in that way. Basically trying to convert that as a form of knowledge. Yes. Uh, yeah, that that's really fascinating. And, and to think of this through the perspective of history and philosophy of science rather than only seeing it within the discourse on caste. I think that link that you have forged through your work is very, very interesting. So the last chapter and then, of course, the, the conclusion, which you call postscript, uh, returns to the, both of them return to the Asheris again. Um, yeah. And, you know, so one is called Asheris and the Order of Knowledge and the postscript is titled Towards an Artisanal Way uh, of the Practice of Knowing. Correct. Uh, yes. So, so uh, why, did, uh, why did you choose this kind of ending and what are the, uh, what are the claims that you're reinforcing in the last chapter and the uh, postscript? Yeah, so uh, when we look into the practice, contemporary practices of Ashari community, uh, there are two, three very important changes that has happened through some from 80s onwards. You will see that, uh, but not for just for Ashari community, many other communities, which was called artisanal communities, many goldsmiths, etc. You will see this transformation. One is that earlier Ashari was a local caste. Uh, and there is in colonial record, they are part of these five caste groups, etc. Aynkammal and what they call, uh, say, Gathastan and all, uh, called Aynkammal, uh, which means that five handicrafts group. Uh, but I don't see that any way people associating with other, these four groups, carpenters or other. That is not happening in Kerala, at least in Malabar. You can't see that in 19th century. The second is this idea of Vishwagarma. Uh, Vishwagarma idea is there for a long period in Karnataka, for example, there are Vishwagarma practices, traditions, and worshipping Vishwagarma as a god. That is there. But in Kerala, you don't see this idea of Vishwagarma until 1950s or maybe even 60s. It is then where this Vishwagarma association is formed in which carpenters also participate. This icon kind of nationalization of caste. You know, it's happening through literature earlier or on of the sociological literature on caste, want to nationalize caste, you know, it's a national phenomena. Uh, but in practice, they are engaging uh, in that, in a kind of nationalization of caste. What happened is that now text become very important here. 
text become the form of knowledge. So they will claim that Vishwakarma, there is five Vedas, which is one is Vishwakarma Veda. Uh, it's not four Vedas. And actually it's not Brahma, but Vishwakarma who created the world. So we are the original Brahmins, etc. So those kind of nationalization process is happening uh, among carpenters also. But on the other hand, and so there will be the chief carpenter now become a kind of theoretician. He will not participate in, you know, like actual work, but he will carry a book, Sanskrit book, and, you know, like he will uh, uh, do the first, you know, like designing process of a house, where to find and checking the vastu and all that. So a new role is emerging in that. But on the other hand, the other ordinary carpentry work has moved into workshops and, you know, so machines are introduced. Uh, furnitures are not made at houses, but, you know, like in workshops, etc. This has turned them into a different kinds of working practice. But I argue that this is not like, still they did not become uh, engineers in that way. That it's not comparable to your factory work also. Because even now they have this idea of experiencing still with them, even if they are not working the early forms of chisel, but in lathe and all that, uh, they consider that as a kind of, you know, like experiencing process in which your body, uh, mind, everything should be put together and, you know, like your hand should sense, etc. hand should think. Uh, I explained this in the first chapter. That ideas are continuing in this. So... But on the other hand, they are started to moving to outside their occupation, traditional occupation, and also, you know, accepting certain groups, accepting kind of Brahmanical principles regarding, or colonial Brahmanical principles regarding what is knowledge and uh, how you claim superiority in a, uh, you claim knowledge to have the superiority in a society. That ideas are taken in the period. Uh, so I thought that, you know, many of the works, uh, when look the indigenous practices the question is how to revive these practices how to revive the banaras sari weaving practice how to protect that madhwani painting whichever you know like you have this idea of reviving indigenous practices i think that is not what i'm uh, kind of in the last chapter i want to think about a little bit about this reviving is you cannot revive a early 20th century practice in 21st century uh, you can have many elements and reform that and, you know, like it ought to be already reformed. You can, as a producers, as a group of producers, we can think about how to protect them, their work, etc. But I'm saying the reviving is not an idea. So in the last chapter, I thought that the whole purpose of understanding the Sashari practices is, you know, not to elaborate what it is, but what what is the current situation of higher education and the knowledge production where I am located? Uh, how do I think it is colonial Brahminical, the institutions are colonial Brahminical and the ways of knowledge, the disciplinary forms, all of them have this uh, genealogy emerging from colonial Brahminical practice. How to challenge that is the question. So subaltern groups are already in challenging the institutional practice of casteism in universities and other practice. But I think it's also caste work as also an epistemological level, not just in the institutional level. So how do we challenge that? In that, I thought that knowing as doing, which is theorized by artisans or the way they practiced it, is very helpful in understanding or thinking about the future of a university. 
So that's why the last chapter I'm trying to, you know, it's a kind of dreaming. It's not like sometimes I, you know, whether it's practical or not, I'm not thinking at that. But the questions are, I think, important and we can have certain proof in the way artisans practice, uh, the uh, artisans' ways of knowing. So last chapter in that way is kind of an imagination uh, of uh, reformed university work. It will be uh, not classroom teaching, but as knowing as will be part of doing. That is uh, an attempt to incorporate this, what I learned from Asharis. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a suggestion to uh, deconstruct the hierarchy yeah. that frame the very, uh, the, the ins not just the institution, but like you said, the epistemology of knowledge production, of what constitutes uh, you know, knowledge when one passes through the university, etc. Right. So that's that's very fascinating. Thank you. So now, uh, are you now that the book is out? Uh, are you working on a new research project? What's coming up next? Uh, uh, I haven't started a new project, but I'm, you know, like started thinking about a new project related to how, uh, you know, family, the idea of family. Uh, as a most powerful, you know, socialized, a social org, uh, say, organization or institution, how in contemporary India, how families, you know, formed its discourses through caste, science, etc. Uh, this is very weak at this stage, so I'm not clear about that, but that may be the next project I'm thinking about. There's a book by Engels, if I'm right, Family, Property, and the State, right? Yeah, so, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. it's in, in the context of India, it's important to think these categories through, of course, yeah. foundational block, as it were, of thought yeah. and also science. So very interesting. So I'll, I'll watch out for uh, that project. as It, it will take a long time. <laughs> I'm a very slow <laughs> writer, especially. Uh, no, I'm the same, really. Uh, Sunanan, thank you for taking the time to chat about your research and your book with us. And this has been such a riveting conversation. And uh, congratulations once again on publishing this uh, crucial uh, work on the history of caste in southern India. And of course, in India in general, but also uh, an important contribution to the history and philosophy of science um, and knowledge. You also show the influence of colonial and indigenous hierarchies of knowledge production that then uh, shape the very constitution of of uh, knowledge as we receive it today in post-colonial India. So thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks to the listeners of this channel for uh, joining us on this episode of New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Mm, have a thank good you. Thank you. Thank you, Uh opportunity to you know converse with you it was really pleasure my pleasure thank you thank you thank you have a good day